Hello, I'm Brian Mastriani, and welcome back to Resolve Talks, the podcast from Resolve Global Health, where we speak with experts from a wide range of industries about what is holding us back from building healthier societies around the world. When thinking about ways we can address the gender health gap or that enduring disparity that persists in centering resources and support for healthcare concerns that are unique to women around the world, you really can't have the conversation without discussing reproductive health care. In its definition of reproductive health, the World Health Organization says that it is a, quote, state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity in all matters relating to the reproductive system and to its functions and processes. Reproductive health implies that people are able to have a satisfying and safe sex life and that they have the capability to reproduce and the freedom to decide if, when, and how often to do so. With that definition in mind, women's access to reproductive health care is a global health issue that touches all walks of life. It reaches far and wide as a public health, societal, and economic issue. Stigma, shame, entrenched barriers to access to abortions and contraceptives, It all disproportionately affects people who are the most vulnerable in society, particularly driving disparities in health outcomes for women in low and middle income countries, hitting transgender and gender diverse people, and forcing families and individuals to stay in cycles of poverty and health disparities. In a high income country like the United States, a 2022 Supreme Court decision struck down the landmark Roe versus Wade ruling leading to confusion and exacerbating social fissures that particularly affect women of color and those on the socioeconomic margins. So, what is being done to center reproductive health as a global health issue, and what supports and interventions exist for women around the world? Today, we are joined by Dr. Kelsey Holt. She's a social and behavioral scientist whose research portfolio is dedicated to identifying ways to promote equity and person-centeredness within the sexual and reproductive health field. She's an associate professor in family and community medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, whose current projects span Ethiopia, Kenya, Malawi, Nigeria, Uganda, and the United States. Dr. Kelsey Holt, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's so great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. No, we so appreciate your expertise. And I know uh, this is such an important topic for so many people. So this is something I know our listeners around the world will really uh, appreciate hearing you delve into all these issues. Uh, but I think before we start talking about your research and your current work, I know I'd be remiss not to mention that we passed uh, the one-year anniversary here in the United States of the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization Supreme Court decision that happened um, June 24th, 2022, last year. Uh, for our listeners around the world, that effectively overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which protected access to abortion legally across the board nationwide. I was curious, just from your perspective, uh, what kind of public health impact uh, does that decision have here in the United States um, across the board in, in society? What kind of ripple effect does, did that have so far? 
Yeah, so the Society of Family Planning here in the United States, in the United States, which is the scientific society here, um, has actually been tracking this really closely through their recount effort. Um, and so their latest press release from just a couple of weeks ago showed that in, over the last year, specifically from July last year through March of this year, uh, more than 25,000 people nationwide have been unable to get an abortion from mm. a provider when they, when they needed it. And in the states where abortion is completely banned or banned at six weeks, that number is up at 80,000 people who have encountered disruptions in accessing care. So just the sheer number of people uh, not being able to get abortion when they need it, um, we know that has a public health impact. Here at UCSF, some excellent researchers conducted a seminal study called the Turnaway Study which was a longitudinal study um, comparing outcomes among people who were denied an abortion versus those who were able to obtain abortion. And they have a number of different publications I encourage folks to look at, but, but at a high level, we know that being denied an abortion results in worse financial health and family outcomes. So the restrictions that we're seeing on abortion access now in the U.S. context are no doubt having these negative impacts on people's and families' lives. Um, Broadly, in addition just to, you know, the fundamental aspect of them being denied their, their human right to reproductive autonomy. Hmm. And that is certainly, I feel this, this national decision here domestically in the United States, it seems to offer a microcosm of, of just how important access to this kind of care is to people around the, around the world. And to zoom out a little bit, uh, do you think, uh, Dr. Holt, do you think issues around women's reproductive health are centered enough as a major global health discussion? Uh, and if not, what more could be done to center that more? Sure. Well, um, you know, sexual and reproductive health certainly receives less of a share of the pie, so to speak, when it comes to global and national funding compared to some other health areas. Um, and I think a larger point, though, is that we're now seeing the necessary push in the global health space to, rather than focus on kind of individual issues, to instead, you know, focus on primary care, preventive care, health system strengthening more broadly in general. Um, and so in this context of the global push to try and do this more holistic health systems, primary care approach, um, it'll be greatly important that um, sexual health, contraception care, fertility care, abortion services are all included as critical components of, of a health system strategy. Um, what, what we see now is that often the focus is more heavily in the reproductive health space is more heavily on specifically maternal health. Mm. And there's sort of a tendency to really think about women primarily as mothers and and that really neglects the attention on the broader need, needs of folks who are not pregnant. Um, and, you know, the increase in funding for contraception work in the last decade or so is, is promising. Um, but I think a more comprehensive movement would include not only contraception, but also, of course, sexual health, abortion, and fertility. Um, and so that's my hope uh, as we continue to move forward is, is that we continue to see a shift towards this broader vision of sexual and reproductive well-being rather than kind of the, the current narrow focus on, you know, maternal health and contraception care. Mm. Uh, when discussing reproductive health care around the globe, what particular issue for you do you think is most salient right now? Is uh, Is there one that stands out for you that 
in bold face letters that you think is particularly crucial and, and, and vital to to these discussions about reproductive health care as, as a necessary uh, social and, and public health need. Uh, is there one that really keeps you up at night when you're thinking about solutions to some of these problems? Um, yeah, well, of course, you know, abortion access is one of the most neglected areas of work. And so that's definitely something that I think a lot about and try to always center when I'm talking about these issues is just to really, um, you know, say the word abortion and, and continue mm. to make the case that um, abortion is in need of attention. And, you know, as you kind of alluded to before, my, my hope is that now that, uh, you know, we have this horrible situation in the U.S. post Dobbs and given our current state of abortion access in the U.S. is so poor, um, I'm hopeful that this will be a wake up call to U.S. leaders and donors um, to step up and invest more at home and internationally to promote and protect abortion access. Um, we've seen we've seen historically that large donors and of course our government are hesitant to include abortion in their portfolio. And you know we'll see. Hopefully that will change a bit now that the stakes at home are so much higher. Um, I've been working on abortion globally for a number of years, um, and you know, in my uh, narrow, you know, my my own personal perspective on this is that I have started to see um, that folks in the U.S. are increasingly uh, looking beyond our own borders, realizing the need to focus more on abortion, and also that we have a lot to learn from the amazing activists and researchers and healthcare providers that have been fighting this fight for a long time in places like Latin America and other parts of the world where abortion access has been restricted for so long. And so I think we have an opportunity now in the U.S. Um, both to reach out beyond our borders and hopefully focus on this uh, abortion more, but also within our borders to, to learn from the great experiences of those who have tirelessly fought for abortion access for decades, for example, mm. um, in Argentina, they've seen slow gains over the years and huge, actually huge wins recently in, in Argentina and other Latin American countries. So I would, I would, to answer your question, mm. I would say it's probably abortion that's kind of the most neglected issue globally. And I, I can imagine that the reason behind that hesitancy that you're mentioning is probably so complicated and obviously it varies from culture to culture and country to country. But before we move on, I was just curious, uh, from your perspective, why do you think there is some of that hesitancy for either policy leaders or people who are in positions of influence to address this issue head on? Yeah, I mean, as you said, I think it's, it's, it's just simply stigma, mm -hmm. simply um, fear of um, <clears throat> what it means to to really stand up and call out abortion as part of a comprehensive package of sexual and reproductive health care, um, given the anti-choice movement. And, um, and, and yes, it's complicated, as you said, with different cultures and religions mm -hmm. having different perspectives on abortion um, in terms of an individual, you know, kind of ethics and morality <laughs> around whether an individual person should, should have one. Um, but I think at a policy and, and you know, human rights level, it, it is very clear um, that abortion should be should be available and accessible to those who would like who need it. Um, so anyway, I think it just simply comes down to fear and and stigma. And again, I hope that um, as we in the U.S. begin to see our our generation. Uh, I mean, I was born in the '80s. Our generation, um, 
grew up with relatively good mm-hmm. access and so didn't necessarily feel compelled to join a fight um, to promote abortion access. But of course, we're seeing that change now. So hopefully there'll be more bravery and attention mm-hmm. to this issue as we move forward. Mm, and, and fear and stigma for a lot of our listeners that that seems to be, at least from my perspective, a theme that keeps coming up in some of these, so many of these conversations around these these issues, whether it's reproductive care or or the other week we we had a conversation about trans healthcare, and it seems like that seems to be a big impediment a lot of times for for health solutions for a lot of these issues. Uh, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, but uh, I wanted to focus on your work because you've done so much in this space around the world. Uh, I was struck by some 2023 research, very recent, uh, in PLUS One that examined the quality of contraceptive counseling scale made in Mexico uh, for use in Ethiopia and India. And for our listeners, you're delving into the role that high-quality, person-centered contraceptive counseling can play in not just promoting reproductive autonomy, but also as a tool for upholding overall health and well-being and one's basic human rights. What does person-centered contraceptive counseling mean? And how effective has it been in promoting contraceptive awareness and access for women, especially for those who are in low and middle income countries? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for looking at that article. It's always nice to know people are Mm -hmm. uh, reading your research. Um, Yeah, so a lot of my work has been in collaboration with folks in Mexico, India, Ethiopia, Kenya, more more recently. all with the kind of agenda, research agenda of documenting people's preferences for how they would like contraception, contraception counseling to go, um, and then documenting their experiences with such counseling. Um, and unfortunately, what we've seen in, in many cases in across countries is that often there is some degree of a negative experience, including pressure from providers either to use or not use contraception generally, uh, or in some cases to use a particular method, such as implants or IUDs, which have received a lot of investment and attention in the past 10 years or so globally. Um, and so, you know, obviously uh, pressure and, and um, negative experiences are not good and not part of a person-centered approach to, to contraception care. And, you know, I think the reason for we see some of this is, court, of course, complex. It's not just about blaming sort of individual mm. providers and their biases, but also recognizing the more systemic and global and donor-related trends that can lead towards a tendency to prioritize um, kind of uptake of contraception rather than focusing on the individual and their needs and their rights to reproductive autonomy. So, so anyway, to answer your question mm. more head-on, um, person-centered contraceptive counseling means that when a provider is talking to their to a person, to a patient, to a client about their contraceptive options, um, that rather than kind of coming from a more medicalized, paternalistic, directive model where the clinician uh, implies that there's one right answer, instead, person-centered counseling means that they elicit people's preferences, try to understand their needs, what matters to them, because there's not one method of contraception that's right for all people. It's not like some other areas Mm -hmm. of healthcare where there's a clear drug regimen um, but rather with contraception, it's more appropriate for providers to base their counseling on what a person says matters to them. So, for example, a person who really is averse to menstrual bleeding changes for personal, religious, or just life reasons, um, 
it's important for that the provider understand that and talk about that and, and ultimately respect if the person says, you know what, I'm not going to use a hormonal method because I don't want to risk um, a bleeding change. And that's just critical from a person-centered and rights-based perspective um, to respect to respect that. And then, you know, more broadly, so that's, that's the counseling space. And then more broadly, person-centered contraceptive care means that any kind of programming that's focused on providing information, access, is really grounded in, in, a, in an understanding of what people need and prioritizing the needs of those most structurally oppressed and disadvantaged um, to, to center their needs in, in kind of all, all forms of programming. Um, so, so anyway, I mean, the last mm-hmm. thing I'll say about that just is just to highlight that our team has had um, the opportunity to try to promote this type of care kind of on two fronts. Um, and on, on one hand, we work on measurement, so trying to better measure people's experiences so that we can document gaps in person-centered care and then hopefully promote people to act on them. Um, and then on the on the more kind of intervention programmatic side, we've had the opportunity to develop innovative solutions to kind of prompt and incentivize systems to do better. So for example, we worked in Ethiopia with the Ministry of Health to develop a small pocketbook that um, counselors can have in their pocket. And it's just sort of a, a visual reminder of the key high-level tenets of what it mm. means to provide good counseling. So reminders about, you know, hey, don't push implants or IUDs. Um, don't forget to ask the person what matters to them. Don't forget to, you know, um, allow them to have a removal of an implant if they want to, that kind of thing. So. Anyway, that's just a mm. high-level overview of some of the work that we've been doing in this area. And I was so curious, what has the response been like from some of these counselors when you've provided these tools uh, to them and given them these these guidelines? Yeah, yeah, people are really open to it. I mean, I think, you know, at, at face value on paper, it's, it's, it's rare that you would talk to a provider who doesn't agree that mm-hmm. ultimately people should be given what they, given choice and, and respect, I think it's in practice that it becomes a little bit more difficult because, again, there's maybe some systemic incentives or some personal biases that in the moment cause them to maybe act a little differently mm-hmm. than they know they should be. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it seems like it's a way to humanize healthcare because I feel sometimes um, Healthcare can feel dehumanizing or remote to people, especially when it's dealing with very personal aspects of their life, like reproductive health care. So, uh, you know, how important is this approach for, you know, for everything from abortion to contraceptive care, um, especially in that those person to person interactions? Yeah, well, I, I mean, very, very important um, to answer simply. Uh, I mean, as you said, it really is fundamental to have that respectful treatment. Um, and we know from research in all kinds of areas, including abortion and contraception, but I would say more broadly in health generally, we know that when people are treated poorly, um, that's bad in and of itself, but importantly, it also affects their trust in the healthcare system. And so we see this kind of um, negative effect where then people are less likely to engage when they need help. So respectful care then becomes not only important in and of itself, but also critical in ensuring people can you know, seek health care when they need it. And, and arguably for contraception, abortion, labor and delivery care, anything related to sexual reproductive health, these are such personal, sensitive 
healthcare needs um, that, you know, arguably the need to be respectful in those moments becomes even greater. And the consequences, if you're not uh, experiencing mm. respect are even, are even greater. So yes, highly important. Mm-hmm. And at Resolve Global Health, many of our listeners are, are decision makers and policy leaders in global health issues across the board. Dr. Holt, what do you think the global health community gets wrong when it comes to discussing reproductive health care? Uh, I'm thinking especially when it comes to reproductive and sexual health in low and middle income countries, for instance. If you had a call to action for some of our listeners in this space, what would it be? Well, you know, as I've alluded to already, I'm, I'm really concerned about this narrow focus uh, on preventing pregnancy as though that's really the kind of the end all be all of mm. what matters when you think about um, family planning care or sexual reproductive health care. So I would encourage listeners to really think beyond, um, you know, unintended pregnancy and, and um, you know, both because this narrow focus can result in contraception programming that uh, kind of has a, a negative impact of prioritizing effective contraception rather than, you know, empowering people to make and act on their own decisions, whatever those decisions might be. Um, but also because, again, as I already mentioned, this narrow focus on pregnancy prevention can neglect sexual health more broadly and abortion. So I think the call would be to really think more broadly um, and to really trust people. When we think about programming, it's not about hey, we got to go out and try to increase uptake of contraception and we have to prevent pregnancy at all costs. I encourage people to come from a place that's more about, okay, the, 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 the human right here is to respect people's own decisions to, and to promote their reproductive autonomy. And so when we do programming and metrics, um, mm. rather than you know, focusing and measuring uptake, um, we should focus on and measure in, you know, promoting agency and empowerment and, and listening to people. Um, one of the ways our team is trying to do this most recently, we've put, we've put forward this idea of a new measure called, um, preference aligned fertility management as a kind of an alternative to contraceptive use Mm -hmm. as the, again, the end all be all of what people are really driving towards. So oftentimes, well, actually almost all of the time that there's a, that there's an investment or a program focused on contraception the gold standard is to measure the output based on, you know, did people use contraception more as a a result of this program or policy? And what we're trying to do with this preference-aligned fertility management measure is say, hey, let's actually, instead of measuring just just simply contraception use, let's let's measure, let's ask people if they actually want to be using contraception. And then then the measure becomes, um, it's a good outcome if they want to be using contraception when they are, great. But if they don't want to be using contraception mm. and they're not, that's also a good outcome. Um, so anyway, I encourage folks to look at this preference-aligned fertility management measure and just to just to think more about um, about those types of outcomes rather than contraceptive use, as though that were always kind of a good outcome. And Dr. Hull, uh, where will your travels and your work take you next? What projects projects will you be delving into and what should we have on our radars when it comes to your work? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> I'm really lucky to be working with um, people in so many different countries right now and here in the U.S. too. Um, 
but most coming up most um, soon, I'll be thrilled to be going to Ethiopia in a couple of months, um, working with a team in Ethiopia and in Kenya on an exciting project where we're using human-centered design to engage communities and experts in both countries to develop some of these innovative solutions um, to contraceptive care. Uh, in this project in particular, we're focusing on follow-up care. So we know um, often the focus is just sort of on the cross-sectional moment when somebody starts using contraception, but we're trying to innovate in the space of, okay, what happens after they start using contraception and how can we help um, with uh, supports around, let's say they experience bleeding changes, or let's say they just want to change the method. Can we come up with more continuous forms of programming and support? Um, so I'm excited to go to Ethiopia. We'll be kicking off um, some of the solution generation for that project soon. And, and again, really grateful to have the opportunity to work with folks around the world. Oh, that's wonderful. We can't wait to see the, the work and research that comes out of that. Uh, Dr. Kelsey Holt, thank you again for taking the time to speak with me. It was such a pleasure. Oh, thanks, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity.